Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from John 18, 33 through 40. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, there's an article that I read not too long ago. And the author of the article was just observing how in American culture, how much we lift up and idolize the virtue of strength, of power, of, of being able to achieve and to accomplish. And the gist of the article was essentially saying that in, as Americans, we shouldn't be overly quick to dismiss the importance of weakness and what it means to be human. And the course of that article, he had... Um, the author was referencing an anthropologist named Margaret Mead. Let me just read to you the section there, which I find to be fascinating. He writes this. The anthrop anthropologist Margaret Mead was once asked to identify the earliest material sign of human civilization. Obvious candidates would be tool production, agricultural methods, art. Dr. Mead's answer, however, was this. A 15,000-year-old femur that had broken and healed. The healing process for a broken femur takes approximately six weeks, and in that time, the wounded person could not work, could not hunt, or could not flee from predators. He or she would need to be cared for at great cost to the group, carried during that time of helplessness. This kind of support, Dr. Mead pointed out, does not occur in the rest of the animal kingdom, nor was it a feature of pre-human hominids. And then the author concludes, our way of coping with weakness as much as our ingenious technologies and arts is what sets us apart as a species. So this notion that maybe the first material sign of human civilization was a broken femur that was mended, uh, that to nurture the weak, to nurture the vulnerable, would have put the entire group at great risk. It's a beautiful, it's a compelling, it's a moving notion of what it means to be human. But the question that it raises for me is, where do the ideas like that come from? Where does Margaret Mead, and I don't know where she stands as far as her own personal religious beliefs, but where does the idea that costly care for the vulnerable is a high watermark of what it means to be human? 
Well, at the heart of it, the answer to that question, that idea can only be found in the Bibles of the Old and New Testament. That unlike any other text, the Bible takes all of our instincts around power and strength and inverts them in a way that makes, I think, all of us, it moves us, and yet it makes all of us uncomfortable. We've been in a series in John where we've been looking at a public faith, examining the claims of Christianity. And the text that was read to us this morning is a text where we're seeing, that we're witnessing the head-on collision of two kingdoms. One kingdom is the kingdom of Rome. It's a human empire. It's a kingdom that was marred for its lust for power, for control, for domination. And the other kingdom that this kingdom of Rome is coming into head-on collision with is the kingdom of God. It's Pilate and it's Jesus. And the kingdom of God in this counter, in almost every encounter like this, the kingdom of God looks weak, looks vulnerable. And here we see in this collision what true power looks like. Throughout this series, we've been looking at all these claims that Jesus makes. And if you're here with us today and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, most of the passages that we looked at were passages of comfort. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. To say that he's the good shepherd. To say he's the light of the world, the resurrection, and the life. To say that he's our true high priest. All of these are encounters with Jesus that offers the Christian deep comfort. But today, I want to say to you, that this encounter will probably make you uncomfortable. It's going to challenge your notions about what it means, about how we move through this world, how the Christian is called to navigate a world obsessed with power. This is a text that for me is endlessly fascinating because it shows me all the ways that I as a Christian must rewire all of my instincts, all of my muscle memory, all of my impulses, this desire to secure and hoard power for myself or for my tribe or for people who believe like me. So let's look at this text, this head-on collision of two opposing empires. And this text juxtaposes three beautiful things. It juxtaposes the way of power, the way of truth, and the way of love. And so let's look at each of those three things. First, we'll consider the way of power. Let me read verses 33 to 37 for you. We're going to be looking at this. It says this, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. While on the one hand, this text is clearly about truth, I think first and foremost, it's actually tr- uh, it's a text about power. We see in Pilate, the words of Pilate, we see all of our natural instincts around, per- around power personified in this single figure. So Pilate, let me give a little bit of background on him. Pilate was probably raised in the upper middle class in a very class stratified Rome. Uh, he was part of what's called the equestrian class. 
Uh, Pilate was also almost certainly a formal, former soldier in the army of the Roman Empire. He probably moved up the ranks as a soldier, became an army, probably a small subsection of that great, this is the greatest military power the world had ever seen up until that point. Uh, by this time, Pilate has retired largely from his, officer, uh, from his career as a soldier and now has become a career politician. And he had been appointed not too long ago to be the governor of Judea. And part of what that meant as governor was he had control of the occupying army. And so the Roman army was physically and militarily occupying the land of Judea. It was an extremely complex region with a lot of unrest, a lot of turmoil, a lot of conflict. It was actually the kind of region that no politician ever wanted to get assigned. And yet here was Pilate kind of in the backwaters of the edge of the Roman Empire, an aspiring politician, a man who all of his life had become obsessed with power. And here he finds himself ruling over an unruly region. Pilate, for most of his career, had probably witnessed firsthand Rome, again, the greatest political power the world had ever seen, had witnessed Rome literally reshape the entire known world. So he watched Rome in the exercise of its military and economic power conquer all sorts of different cultures and civilizations. He had seen all these different cultures with all sorts of beliefs in a pantheon of gods or a single god or spirits or no god. Had seen all of these other uh, cultures and all these other cultures with all these different kinds of beliefs ultimately subdued by the military power of Rome. And so it's not a far stretch to realize that for Pilate, he looked at all these people and they all believed that their gods were the true gods. But in the end, at the tip of the sword, none of that mattered. They were conquered by sheer military might. It was force and power that ultimately determined their truth. Power and violence, the sword, the power of Roman technology and commerce, the beauty of the aqueducts and the road and tr roads and trade. Ultimately, all these forms of power were the only thing that was really real in Pilate's world. And to Pilate's credit, all of these things had created what historians now call the Pax Romana a season of remarkable peace, or at least the absence of widespread conflict. Whether there was peace or not, I suppose, remains to be debated. But a season of Pax Romana. And in Rome, anybody could believe whatever it is that you wanted. You could be a Greek pagan, you could be a Zoroastrian, you could be a Jew, you could be a Greek philosopher. It didn't matter what you believed in your private life, as long as you weren't causing disruption for the power of the Roman state. And so for Pilate, when he responds to Jesus with a little bit of a sneer, when he says, what is truth? In many respects, it's the question that defined his life every day until that moment. There's no such thing as truth. Truth is created by those who are in power. This was Pilate's world. Now, for me, as I read that, the reason I find this to be endlessly fascinating is do you hear how incredibly modern Pilate sounds? I mean, in many respects, he kind of sounds like one of the earliest postmodern philosophers that says there's no such thing as universal truth. Anyone who tries to tell you that their truth claims are truly true are really just doing a power play on you. 
that in the end, everything is relative, that we live in a world that where there are no moral absolutes, where there are no true truths out of what we can see with our, uh, our eyes and feel with our senses, and that any of those claims are the attempt of the powerful trying to control the weak. Does that sound familiar to you? That in many respects, we find ourselves living in a world that is not very different from the world like Pilate. And then, just like now, in a world where there is no truth, where there is no shared reasoning, where there are no, no universal norms to appeal to, when you have groups of people who disagree with you, and there is no universal truth, there's no agreed-upon moral reasoning to try to persuade one another, when there is no truth, the only way you can deal with people who disagree with you is to defeat them politically. It sounds maybe uncomfortably similar to the world we live in today. But here again, the parallels that I see in this text to our modern world is uncanny because it's not just Pilate, who once again represents kind of the secular state. This is the empire that ruled the world. It's not just that Pilate represents so much of kind of postmodern or late modern philosophy. But even the ways that the religious leaders get sucked into the same obsession with political power cuts a little too close, doesn't it? It's a little bit too, hits a little bit too close to home because the religious leaders are playing the exact same game that Pilate finds himself playing. It's the religious leaders, after all, who delivered Jesus a rabbi within their own community. It's the religious leaders who delivered Jesus over to be executed by the secular state. And remember, for the religious leaders, what started off as a theological controversy, Jesus was claiming to be God himself. By the time it makes it to Pilate, did you notice what the charges against Pilate are? Not theological. Pilate doesn't care what you believe in your private life. Now the charges are Jesus is claiming to be a political king and therefore represents a threat to our modern, our current political order. Do you see how easily the discourse shifted from theology to politics? Anybody uncomfortable yet? I'm uncomfortable saying this to you because this is the world that we find ourselves living in and of course, the irony that the Gospel of John, the writer of John, digs deep into is profoundly insightful. Because just later in chapter 19, right after all this entire exchange, Pilate comes back to the people and says, so should I crucify the king of the Jews? Remember what the crowd says? They say, no, crucify him. Don't release him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they say what? They say, we have no king besides Caesar. What a stunning confession to make. A religious group, a group of religious leaders entirely co-opted by the political system of their day. We have no king besides Caesar. And this is the world that Jesus finds himself in chains. And in the end, the religious leaders decide they would rather have Barabbas, an insurrectionist, 
a man who committed an act of political violence, they would rather make Barabbas a hero and a patriot than to confess that Jesus is Lord. Anybody uncomfortable yet? They would rather have an insurrectionist, a hero and a patriot than to confess Jesus as Lord. In a world obsessed with power, friends, Religion just becomes another way to get power for yourself. And it's absolutely stunning how modern this text is. Here's a quote that haunts me. I read it many, many years ago, and it's one of those quotes that I, could, I cannot forget. And it's Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic uh, writer, uh, who's reflecting on the contrast between power and love. And he says this, Power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. It seems easier to control people than to love people. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who have opted for power and control over the hard work of love. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. It's a striking quote for anybody in Christian leadership. The Christian empire builders have been those who've opted for power over the hard work of love. This is the way of power. This is what it looks like to lead or to have influence in a world obsessed with power. It's the world of Pilate. It's the world that you and I inescapably are immersed in every moment of the day. And by the way, Jesus' disciples were not immune to the temptations of power. Do you remember what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's literally in the same chapter in the Gospel of John, just before Jesus comes before Pilate. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And what's Peter's first instinct? What are his muscle memories? What's, what's the memory that's in his bone? His first instinct when the guards come to arrest Jesus is to draw the sword and to cut off the servant, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. The muscle memory of power, of violence. The muscle memory of asserting dominance. The ways of the kingdom of God had not yet gotten to the bones of Peter. And I want to suggest to you and to me, it has not yet gotten to the bones of Christians in America today. It's a world of power. It's the ways of power. That one of the ways that we can know we're growing in the way of Jesus is the ways that we inhabit this world of power in a radically different way. And so that's the first point. The way of power, it's pervasive. It's in your blood, it's in your bones. To follow Jesus means to unlearn the ways of power and to learn the ways of the kingdom. So that's the first point, the way of power. Secondly, I want to look at the way of truth because Jesus very clearly is contrasting the ways of power with the ways of truth. Let me read to you verses 36, 37, and 38 where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. That actually already happened. Jesus had to stop Peter from doing that. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And then it continues on. 
What's interesting here, again, endlessly fascinating to me, is that Jesus doesn't deny that he's a king. In fact, Jesus, in so many words, essentially affirms that I am a king, but my kingdom is from a different world. My kingdom is of a different order, of a different kind. And for Jesus, he doesn't reject or flee from power. Jesus confronts and challenges and transforms power. He doesn't tell his disciples to separate out from a world obsessed with power, to reject that world, and to keep yourself pure from the ways of power. No, what Jesus says is my kingdom is not from this world, it's from another place, and now I'm entering in. He's orchestrated this head-on collision with the kingdom of Rome, with the empire of Rome. He's engaging the ways of power, but he's unmasking and dismantling the ways of power as ultimately a form of fear and insecurity and ultimately weakness. And he says the way that you confront the ways of power is to testify to a truth that stands above and stands in judgment of all of our instincts around power. Jesus' language here is fascinating to me. He doesn't say, I've come to enforce the truth. He says, I've come to merely testify to the truth. He doesn't say that everyone on the side of the truth must submit to me. He says, everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. For Jesus, truth doesn't coerce people. Truth persuades people. That there actually is a kind of power that exists far above the ways of power in this world. And he says, I've come so that people might see the truth. And the truth will unmask all of the insecure power plays that define the world around them. Jesus enters into this world obsessed with power, but he enters in a radically different way. He enters to show us another way. It's the way of truth, and it's a way that refuses the ways of violence. And he calls those who follow him to live out the way of weakness to live out this way of weakness as the path to true power. For me, one of the clearest examples of this comes right in our own history as a nation, and it comes from the Civil Rights Movement. And some of you know that that, to me, I think is one of the most important, uh, I would call that a time of, it was a third grade awakening in US's, U.S.'s history. We just don't call it that. But when I think about the civil rights movement, here's what Dr. King wrote. He's, he's talking about, uh, this is in a sermon called Loving Your Enemies. And he writes this, and I want you to focus on what Dr. King calls soul force. Because he gets that from Jesus. And I think he's probably getting that from this passage. But here's what he writes. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. 
Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall, continue, we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That's soul force. The moral force of truth. That Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom not of this world. My kingdom is a kingdom that rejects the use of violence. My kingdom is a kingdom that doesn't need the sword to protect it. My kingdom is a kingdom that has power that these kingdoms know nothing about. A couple of summers ago, we were down in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So Justin was there with me and there was a few others, and we got to visit uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church down there. And if you know anything about that time, uh, the civil rights history, that happened right through there. So there were marches that were being um, coordinated from 16th Street Baptist to City Hall. Uh, and this was during kind of the height of the civil rights um, era. And so this is Birmingham, Alabama. If you ever read a letter from Birmingham jail, that's the jail Dr. King was sitting in during this time, the summer of 1963, uh, where he was in that jail during this time. So so at this point, Dr. King is already in prison. In uh, Alabama, the civil rights leaders there, Fred Shuttlesworth and others, had coordinated a boycott around the Easter season as a way to draw attention to the injustices towards African Americans in our history. Uh, And during that time, Dr. King gets arrested, and they plan on Easter Sunday, they plan a march from 16th Street Baptist to City Hall. Now, one of the things that's unique about the, the uh, marches that were being coordinated there in Birmingham was that it was a first set of marches that involved children. So from elementary age through high school and college students were involved in this march. So it's oftentimes called the Children's Crusade. And Andrew Young, who was a leader during that time, I think he might have actually been a college student at the time, uh, he writes this about that summer in 1963, and it's powerfully moving. Um, But to me, there's nothing that more clearly illustrates the power of the way of truth than what I'm about to read you. It says this, Easter dawned with Martin Luther King Jr. in jail. We planned a march from New Pilgrim Baptist Church to the city jail for the afternoon of Easter Sunday. By the time church ended, some 5,000 people had gathered dressed in their Sunday clothes. Uh, The marchers set out in a festive mood until they saw police, fire engines, and firemen with hoses blocking their path, and everyone stopped and looked at their leaders. And this is Andrew Young again. Wyatt Walker and I were leading the march. I can't say we knew what to do. I asked the people to get down on their knees and pray. Suddenly, Reverend Charles Billups jumped up and hollered, The Lord is with us. Off your knees, we're going on. Stunned at first, Bull Connor, who was the um, head of police there, Bull Connor yelled, Stop him, stop him. But then the police moved a muscle. Even the police dogs that had been growling and straining at their leashes were now perfectly calm. I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just let the hose drop at his feet. Our people marched right between the red fire trucks singing, I want Jesus to walk with me. The The policemen had refused to arrest us. The firemen refused to hose us. And the dogs had refused to bite us. It was quite a moment to witness. I'll never forget one old woman shouting, Great God Almighty, then parted the Red Sea one more time. What a story. 
but a deep moral, otherworldly power to truth. A soul force that will dominate physical force. It's a power that shut the mouths of police dogs. It's a power that disarmed opponents with tears. It's a power that parts the sea is that the truth of God, Jesus is saying to us here, doesn't need a sword to defend it. It doesn't need a new Christian nationalism to guard it. That the kingdom of God is most clearly, forcefully, compellingly displayed when it stands in contrast to and in opposition to the machinery of the empires of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. I've not come to exact violence, but to testify to a greater and a higher truth. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, eternal sovereign, the ancient of days, facing Pilate, who really was a second-rate, mid-level bureaucrat of now an extinct empire. Here is this head-on collision, and on the surface, everything looks upside down, doesn't it? Jesus is in chains, maybe stripped, clothes of a peasant, on trial for his life, thrust by guards into the palace of this king, this governor. Pilate looks strong, the Roman governor in control. He says, I have the power to free you or to crucify you. And in, in this collision, it's the kingdom of God that ultimately wins, not by overpowering or dominating or conquering but it wins through weakness, through servanthood, through the willingness to take on suffering rather than inflicting it. And the kingdom of God unmasks the hypocrisy and the insecurity that animates all the empires of this world. And when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, it wasn't just the Roman Empire that was unmasked for what it was, but it was the empire of death, of sin, of Satan. It was the empire that was ultimately in rebellion against God. It was the empire behind the empire of Rome that ultimately was defeated by a risen Lord, unmasked as a false kingdom. We were shown that it's life and forgiveness and love and healing that will have the last word. And this, by the way, is why the gospel, the good news, says if any one of us turns away from the ways of violence and sin, of death and of hatred, and turns towards this kingdom of forgiveness, this kingdom of love, this kingdom of self-sacrifice, if you turn in repentance away from the ways of the kingdom of the world and turn in repentance towards King Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, the forgiveness of God is ready for you. It's the way of truth. I gotta keep moving. Ah, but I'm gonna say one more thing before I move on to the third point. Here's what this means. I'm sorry, I'll do this quickly. First, it means this. It means, all this, here's what it means. First, it means that in our world obsessed with power, it's only truth that can stand up against power. And if we live in a world where truth is made a subset of power, we've lost our ability to resist power. 
power. You cannot speak truth to power as long as truth is a subset of power. Are you following? The only hope in a world obsessed with power is that there is a truth that cannot be denied, that is true whether you feel like it's true or not. That's the first thing it means. Secondly, it means that the truth of God doesn't look like power in this world. It's going to look like weakness. That if you're a Christian here today, you and I, we need to unlearn the instincts of power. We got to get it out of our bones. And we need to learn the upside-down ways of the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright says this, when God wants to take charge of the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. When God wants to take charge of the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. Thirdly, it means this. It means that truth is found in Jesus alone. He says, the reason I was born to te- is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the one who will dismantle the ways of violence, the ways of power, who unmask all the empires of the world. Jesus is the ancient of days, the king of kings, the lord of lords. But third and finally, this will be quick, I promise. First, the way of power. Secondly, the way of truth. Third, and finally, the way of love. I love this little detail in verse 34, where Pilate, they're back in the palace. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? In verse 34, Jesus asks him this. Is that your own idea, Pilate? Or did others talk to you about me? Now, what I love about that is this. Here's Pilate, Jesus' apparent opponent, Here's Pilate who has the power to crucify or free Jesus. At least that's how it looks on the surface. Here's Pilate who represents this empire obsessed with power. But when Jesus looks at Pilate, do you know what he sees? He sees an image bearer lost in a world obsessed with power. He sees an individual who probably feels like a cog crushed inside the machinery of Rome. He sees Pilate, not the governor of Judea, but he sees Pilate, the one made after the image of God, because Pilate, in many respects, is a tragic figure. He probably only lasts in his job for about 10 years. He never rises above the level of mediocrity. And history has it, Eusebius, who's a Roman historian, says that he was likely forced to take his own life by the state that he had given his life to serve. That when you worship power, you will always feel weak. And this is the pilot that Jesus sees. And Jesus gets behind the Roman armor that Pilate is wearing and sees the heart of someone made in the image of God. Jesus sees behind the authority and the, and the pompousness. He sees behind all of the, um, the, the strutting. And he sees a pilot and he says, is that your idea that I'm the king of the Jews? Because if it's your idea, let's talk a little bit more about that. And now suddenly for me, when Pilate says, what is truth? I'm not so sure it's a sneer. Or NIV says, he says, what is truth, retorted Pilate. But the Greek just says, 
What is truth, said Pilate? What if that question was the actual question that Pilate was desperately looking for an answer for? What is truth? And so there's Jesus, his life on the line, completely at the mercy of Pilate for his life. And one commentator says this, the one who's in prison, the powerless one, offers his judge true freedom. It's the way of love, not just the way of truth. In a world obsessed with the way of power, the Christian is called not only to live out the way of truth, but this way of love, a love that offers, offers liberation even to our greatest enemies. Friends, if this is what Jesus has done, don't you recognize the one true king that you can trust your entire soul to? Don't you recognize the one true king who can hold absolute power and hold it in love? Friend, let me wrap up here. What is the armor that you're hiding behind right now? What is it that you've put on in your life to protect yourself so the world won't see your weakness? What's the Roman standard that you're hiding behind so that you can look strong and confident and capable and mighty? What is it that you're using to protect yourself from the judgment of others? Friends, Jesus wants to get under your armor today. He wants to ask you, what is it that you think about me? Have you met this Jesus? Have you seen him die for you? Do you see he can unmask all of your own pretensions to prove that you're somebody that you're not? Do you see that he offers you an embrace? Friends, as we come to his table now, let's lay aside all the armor, all the masks, all the pretense. And let's come to this table as the vulnerable ones who comes to a king who knows what it's like to be vulnerable, who's laid down his life. And it's a strange table for a king, isn't it? And yet this is the kingdom and this is the king that our hearts long for. So let's come to him now. Let's pray. Lord, help us to unlearn the ways of power forgive us. It comes so easily without thinking. Lord, forgive us that we have doubted the power of truth. But Lord, ultimately, would you show us the way of love, the way that speaks truth and love. And Lord, I pray that right now, would your spirit, by your spirit, would you open our hearts to your way of love right now? that we, we prefer the way of power because it feels like we can protect ourselves. We don't have to lay ourselves bare. We might even pursue, pr prefer truth because it gives us a sense of superiority, but the way of love means that we need to open ourselves up to receive love. It means we have to lay down our swords and lay down our armor and simply come to you vulnerable. So as we come to your table, O oh Lord, would you open up our hearts? Show us in ways that we each need specifically. Show us your way of love for us.
so that we can repent of all the ways of the world, to repudiate all of that, and instead receive the love that you offer us in Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.